Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. It's been great these past 10 years interviewing some of the top business thought leaders and authors we can get our hands on, people we enjoy talking to, hopefully people you enjoy listening to. AMA Edgewise is going on a temporary hiatus. We will be coming back with some great guests and some cool topics. We're just not sure when. So please continue the feed, go back and listen to old episodes, spread the word on how great this program is. And in conversations with my producer for this show, Kristen Liberty, we thought it might be very interesting in this interim conclusion episode, which is what I'm calling it, to put together a best of compilation highlights of some of our favorite episodes. So Kristen and I are hoping that you really enjoy the program. Many times when you reward behavior, you get more of it and you punish it, you get less of it. But it's not true all the time. In fact, it's actually true less often than we think. And what exactly does that suggest? That has huge implications for business and management. 40, 50 years of science shows this very clearly. For relatively simple, straightforward work, mechanical work, what psychologists call algorithmic work, routine work, where you're following a set of rules, following a recipe, racing to the correct answer. Everything from turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line to stuffing envelopes to adding up columns of figures. The classic sort of motivator we use inside of organizations, if you do this, then you get that, works pretty well. Gets people to focus, eliminates distractions, barrel straight ahead. Okay. The challenge is the science is equally clear that for more complex, creative, conceptual work, if-then motivators just don't work very well. Sometimes they even backfire. So what we have here is a motivational system built for routine mechanical work when fewer and fewer people, particularly in the United States and Western Europe, are doing that kind of work. And what we really need is a fundamentally different motivational operating system, one that's centered less on carrots and sticks and more on what science tells us leads to enduring motivation for creative conceptual work. organization, like you mentioned, EMTs, they're very structured and rigid. How does improv work in that environment, and is it a challenge to bring that into such an environment? It's not, because improvisation on its own actually operates within structure. So you have to maintain uh, the parameters and operate successfully inside of those, or in our cases, towards strategy. So you learn specific tools and techniques as foundational blocks on which you can build, and that then complements and otherwise buttresses or supports other skill sets like for EMTs or first responders that need to be comfortable with the situation, crowd control, medicine, of course, and direction in any management or leadership capacity. They recently polled senior executives across major corporations, across all functional areas, and they asked that question, what's the most important thing to your success and your team's success year in and year out? And of course they said relationships, almost 90% respond to relationships. They asked the same executives, great, what do you do about that? And only 24% came back and said they have any kind of thoughts or intentionality or process around relationships. So I'll pose it to you, Dave. Why do you think we have this paradox? Why do so many executives think they're important, yet only a small percentage actually think they do anything about it? I think people are probably caught up in 
you know, that sort of, what do I want to call it, ritualistic understanding of what a relationship is, of what a friendship is, of how you handle the conversations and whatnot. And when it comes time to execute and perform and be businesslike across something that you have previously, you know, sort of previously defined as a personal thing, they're lacking the structure. They're lacking the discipline, they're lacking the uh, systematic approach to it. The uh, that's my guess. Sure, the rigor, because relationships are awkward, they're squishy, they take time. How do I do it? And we find that intra-company relationships are actually the weakest, because we kind of assume, because we work for the same organization, oh, we can just go do this project together. We don't have to work on our relationship, because the project will bring us together. It's kind of ironic to me, or paradoxical that the most important thing, relationship building, gets the least amount of attention in large corporations. And if you think about it, Dave, we have plans for everything in life. And you mentioned planning. Why don't we have plans for our relationships? Exactly. It turns out that multitasking is a myth. Multitasking is, in fact, impossible. Our brains can only do one thing at a time. And what's commonly called multitasking in popular culture, the scientists refer to as task switching, which is what is really happening in your brain when you think you're multitasking. Your brain is rapidly going from one task to the other back and forth, making it much less efficient than when you focus your energy on one task at a time. You really can, like the subtitle of the book says, get more done when you focus on one task, one item, one person at a time. All right. So if a person is a modern-day person, a modern-day business person, and they're all wrapped around the axles with multitasking right now, how do they detox? How do you become a single tasker? What are the first steps? The first step is awareness, is realizing that being overwhelmed and bombarding your brain with stimuli makes you more frenetic and less effective. In fact, it gets even worse than that. And scientists have also discovered, neuroscientists have measured the gray matter in the brain and the prefrontal cortex and have realized that it shrinks the brain to multitask or to do what we call so-called multitasking because, in fact, you cannot do two competing tasks at the same time in your brain. So it shrinks your brain. It makes you less efficient. It reduces your intelligence, it reduces your focus, and it also harms relationships. When we think we're trying to please everyone all the time, we end up making a lot more mistakes. We end up having diffused attention. It's what I call a big syndrome in our culture, scattered brain syndrome. And that means that we are almost never present in the moment and present in the conversation. And that destroys relationships, productivity, and even our brains. If a company has to broadcast a vision constantly, then it seemed to me in the cases I work that those companies are attracting often the wrong type of people because if there is a basic vision, then the people who come to the company will understand that vision pretty quickly. That vision would attract those type of people too. Right. And then that brings in people and then those people carry it forward. So it doesn't have to be this constant top-down creation and articulation of that vision place like Starbucks was interesting in that it has a pretty clear vision that as a customer, you can walk in and understand pretty much what they're about. But I found in the store where I worked, there still was a lot of 
what I thought of as top-down articulation of this message through all the materials. And to me, I was a bit cynical or skeptical because I kept seeing all this material telling me what to think instead of just trusting that I would. And you thought it would have, at least in your particular case, played better if they had just sort of backed off that a little bit and trusted you to say, I get it. I'm there. I'm part of something big. It's a happening brand. It's a cool place to be. Exactly. But then you also got to look at the big picture and they've got 12,000 stores and they've grow. There's probably a new store opening every few days, if not more. So it's difficult to sit back and just trust that everybody will understand. So their process is more or less built to scale quickly. Exactly. This is a company that's relatively young, 10, 20 years old, and has exponentially grown. So in the initial days, I don't think they would have had to spend so much time articulating that message. Now they do. You've kind of gone for more of the environmental, it's the vibe of the place kind of thing. Right. UPS is 100 years old, and their message is pretty clear by now to them and their employees. We have a delay problem in organizations. When an important decision comes up in an organization, it gets delayed. And the vehicle that it happens through is meetings. We call many meetings after many meetings, and it's effectively a way for the decision owner to delay it. The bias in that type of system is for the decision to never get made or to get delayed endlessly. So if we can change the structure of the meeting system in a way where the bias is towards action, where it actually encourages people to make decisions quicker, well, then we have a meeting system that could actually work. The meeting, if you think about it, I call it a weapon of mass interruption. <laughs> right. One person with just a click of their Outlook button can interrupt 10 people's schedule for an hour. And if it's your decision... That shouldn't happen very often because that's a very expensive thing and it creates an environment of interruption. So when you have to make a decision, you may need input. You may need feedback from other people. That's part of intelligent decision making. But where did we create this idea that you have to call a meeting? Why not reach out to those people individually in one-on-one -on -one interactions to get the feedback you need and then make the decision? If you do it that way, you're not interrupting people. And it turns out conversations are much better for getting valuable feedback. And once you've made the decision, it doesn't have to be the decision, but it has to be a decision. The meeting can serve as a form to debate that decision. So the meeting convenes to support a decision that has already been made. What groups are great at is disagreeing, but they're horrible at agreeing. But if a preliminary decision is already made and there's no resolution in that meeting, at least you have the preliminary decision to say, listen, I know the resolution hasn't happened, but we have to go in that direction in the expedience of time. Over the last 10 years, I've noticed a big trend to go international for a lot of big companies, not least American companies. Hmm. When I was looking at competition back in 99, I figured I would see a lot of the big retailers go into different markets and we would see a much harsher competition, meaning we would meet these competitors in more markets than we had before. Many certainly tried. We've seen Walmart trying to enter Europe, China. We've seen Home Depot likewise. Mm -hmm. We've seen some big retailers in Europe like Tesco, Carrefour, move into emerging markets. Tesco has just come to the U.S. trying to make it here. So that's been a big trend in this direction, but it has been a bit of a failure. How so? Over the last few years only, we've seen Carrefour stop their operations in Japan, in Thailand, in Indonesia, a lot of countries out there. 
We've seen Home Depot leave China. We've seen Walmart leave Germany. So many people have contracted to their home market. Mm -hmm. Many of them have underestimated what it takes to go global. Right. There are a number of important things you need to master if you go global. And that's the reason why IKEA has been successful. IKEA today is in about 26 markets. So what do we need to be successful? First of all, you have to have a unique prospect. When you enter a new market, you have to come with something that doesn't exist in this market. So you add something new. Some have underestimated this, especially when Western retailers move from, let's say, Europe to the U.S. or vice versa. One reason European retailers have failed in the U.S. and U.S. retailers in Europe is there isn't enough uniqueness in the offer. So if Walmart comes to Germany, you are selling baked beans and they already exist in Germany. Sure. When a Western retailer goes into a merger market, you have some chance of being unique because what you usually find in these markets is very cheap, low quality at the bottom end. And then you have the extremely expensive stuff, high-end brands right. being imported. Mm -hmm. So the whole middle market is available. Then another aspect that is often underestimated is the values aspect. You bring your value set from your company to this new market, underestimating the differences. Therefore, you encounter some problems mm -hmm. in getting accepted both by the customers and the employees. Old jobs disappear at a slightly smaller rate than new jobs appear when they are allowed to using new technologies. So most of the jobs that all of us are doing are made possible by the technologies of communication and production factories. Mm -hmm. That's going to be true for the whole world in the coming century. Robots and computers are going to automate many of the old jobs and they'll disappear. But all of the new jobs are being facilitated and made possible by technology as well. In an article you wrote about a year ago for the New York Times magazine, you say that before you can master a device program or invention, it will be superseded. You will always be a beginner. Get good at it. What do you mean by that? It's almost a cliche now that whatever you're being taught in school is not what you're going to confront in a job. Whatever programming language you're taught in school, you certainly won't be working in because we'll have moved on from that mm -hmm. by four or five years. And that's increasingly not only true for computer people and software people, but for everybody. Right. Even the highest paid occupations or the most popular occupations are going to change in five to 10 years. The highest paying jobs, the most lucrative positions of the next generation have not been invented yet. So an essential survival skill is learning how to learn, spending your time becoming good at mastering new things, and understanding that you shouldn't get too upset where something that you have mastered is no longer important, because that's just the nature of the society that we're moving into. Most people have full freedom to run side gigs, and actually employers are increasingly encouraging this, and that's because it can help the employer too. So I'll explain that through a few examples. One woman, actually an Olympic hopeful runner who's hoping to be in the next Olympics as a sprinter, she found that through her job as an accountant, her company really embraced her incredible talent as a runner, and they all cheered her on when she was trying to get to London. They really encouraged her because it reflected well on the company 
too. So that's one thing we see where your side gig really speaks well of your company. Other times, your side gig can actually give you skills that you can then bring to your company and contribute even more in your full-time job. And that I found with a social media consultant in Chicago. He was doing social media consulting on the side, helping people build up their Twitter accounts, that kind of thing. He had a similar job, a social media consulting job for his full-time job, and his boss was so happy he did both because his boss saw that he was learning and picking up all kinds of new skills through his side gig. So if your boss or your supervisor can see your side gig as an asset, that's really the best situation. And it's up to you to kind of spin it that way. If you can explain to them what it's bringing to your full-time job, then you'll have a better chance of melding the two together. If you go back and read the 9-11 report, all of the information needed to stop the plot that was so tragically executed was in American hands. We had plenty of information. All we had to do was put those pieces of the puzzle together. But the incentives, the culture, the habits, the processes didn't exist that made them come together automatically. Now, that's complex business. But at the same time, there were all kinds of silos, walls, and habits that stopped that. The problem with secrecy is it becomes an excuse for things. You information hoard because information is power. Now, some things have to be kept confidential, but sometimes you do it for power. Sometimes you do it just because it takes some energy to share information. You're just lazy. And then other times that classic case of you don't have a need to know. The problem with that is who knows who needs to know? How do I know what you need to know? Routinely on the battlefield in Iraq, what would happen is we'd be ready to launch an operation against an Iraqi individual as a target, and we'd find out from the intelligence community, no, that person's our source. And you say, well, if we don't know that, how can we take action that's appropriate for that? So I'm a believer in extreme amount of transparency. Now, obviously, there are limits, and you have to be mature about it, and you don't want to just dump all your raw information that people can't digest it all. But I think at the end of the day, you get better performance when people have a broader contextual understanding. And actually, the cost is relatively speaking low. We are paid to think, innovate, create, and execute. That's the main job of the workforce in the 21st century. And so the brain, when you think about it, is our number one tool. Mm -hmm. And we then say, well, how do you optimize that tool? And so frameworks for the brain are the best way for the brain to digest, synthesize, and remember stuff. So even Dr. John Medina, who wrote the book Brain Rules, it's another great book. It's easy to read. It's not very long. And he wrote that actually the way the brain can accept information. And he said that hierarchical structure information will help humans remember things something like 40% better. Okay, And that's not the exact quote, but that's the general idea. So our brain accepts information in small packets. It needs rhythm. The brain wants predictability. So when you put something into a framework, into chunks, into something that has sort of a rhythm to it, Almost like your social security number, it's dun 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 kind mm-hmm. of thing. Then it's easy for us to act on it. Sure. All right, so that about wraps it up for us. And again, see this as an interim conclusion. 
We'll be keeping you in the loop as to when we come back online and when we're going to start up the stream again. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for all the support. Thanks for the follows. See you soon. 